Hey, folks, I'm Sam Evans-Brown, and this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. Today, we've got a double feature. In the second half of the show, we've got a new Ask Sam where we'll tackle some listener questions about bird feeders, black flies, and the clouds. But first, it's time for another one of our regular bits. No other species can defeat them. They're invasive. So why don't we just freaking eat them? Because we're hungry. Eat the invaders. This is Eat the Invaders, where we talk about fighting off invasive species by using the somewhat questionable strategy of eating them. This is Japanese knotweed. It's a plant which was introduced, as so many of them are, because it has beautiful flowers and is really easy to grow. In Japan, when a volcano erupts and buries the land in magma, knotweed is often the first plant to break through the rocks and recolonize. It looks sort of like bamboo, with broad, tear-shaped leaves and tall, segmented stalks that can grow to be over your head. But here in the U.S., knotweed is a problem. And it is tenacious. It can grow through foundations, tear apart pavement or stone walls, or just take over your yard. But there's at least a little bit of good news. In another week or two, as it warms up here, it's going to send up these little shoots. And when it sends those up, the first foot, foot and a half, is edible like asparagus. That's Ken Hardcastle. He's a winemaker. What's it, what's it taste like? It's... um. Not as nice as asparagus for, for myself. <laughs> so I used to uh, have knotweed that grew up all around my, <laughs> my house when I was a kid. And this is Taylor Quimby, our producer. And I used to just eat it right off the stock. Oh, you did? Yeah, so, like a lot of it. A lot of it? Yeah. Wow. I used to go out with a wiffle, wiffle ball bat, and my parents would be happy to just send me off, and I would smash sure. it down. This stuff really comes, this has that nice crack to it. We're standing in Ken's yard, where alongside a quaint little stream and nearby stone wall, there are two long rows of last year's knotweed, standing seven or eight feet high. Now it's all dry and brittle, which, I will say, makes the idea of going into a field of this stuff with a wiffle ball bat seem pretty appealing. We have hackers and whackers and all sorts of things, and we just, we come out here and spend an hour just hacking the crap out of it, you know? All your stress, gone. Yeah, perfect, it's great. I've had friends come over and, and grab some sort of implement and head out into the, into the woods and just, just hack Japanese knotweed for a while. Let me interrupt this regularly scheduled Eat the Invaders segment with a little PSA. If your goal is to limit the spread of this invasive, this is a terrible idea. Well, I, I wouldn't recommend that. Doug Saigan is the state invasive species coordinator and says that even a tiny fragment of the stem, crown, or root can turn into a whole new plant. And what's more, cutting it stimulates growth. So if you had just a few square feet of stems, all of a sudden you cut it, and the next year you could have, you know, exponential number of square footage of stems. So Ken and Taylor's chopping probably has led their plants to spread exponentially. Should you actually want to get rid of knotweed, you can spray it with herbicides, or you can cut it down, dry it, burn it, cover the entire area where the knotweed was with the thickest tarp you can find, bury the tarp with wood chips, and leave it there for five years straight. So yeah, this stuff is invasive. But for Ken, who loves experimenting with things in order to make wine, and whose blueberry wine was good enough that it was featured on the Today Show, Knotweed presented an opportunity. 
what I did try doing was to ferment it because the plant is all over my backyard and it's supposedly loaded with resveratrol, which is a good antioxidant that's in red wine grapes. So I thought, oh, this is related in some way to red wine. Let's, let's see if we can make wine out of it. So I, I collect the shoots when they come up and chop those up and throw them in a fermenter. They don't Fermentation have... is a pretty simple process. First, you need yeast and you need sugars. And then you just need to provide a nice environment that the yeast will like to grow in. Certain yeasts will eat the sugar and then basically crap out alcohol. So I take the plant, put it in some water, and add some sort of fermentable. Honey, maple sap, syrup, corn sugar, anything you got that has sugar in it. Ken says that process of making alcohol will pull nutrients and color and flavor out of the knotweed or rhubarb or whatever you've got in there and stick it into the liquid. I made a straight, the, the straight up Japanese knotweed wine when I first made it, after it was in the bottle, pouring it for my colleagues, they were amazed at how it smelled. It had this, this bouquet of baby wipes. Something you pull out of box. It smelled just like baby wipes. The thing about a bottle of wine is the taste and smell changes as it ages. Ken says the baby wipe smell went away after the bottles sat on the shelf for a few years. Watch your head down here. It's a little... Now we're in Ken's basement. It's an old-school, dusty, cobwebby, dirt-floored, kind of wet New England farmhouse basement. This is where he's got one last bottle of the wine that he made years ago out of knotweed. So this is... K2. K2. That's uh, the second version of my Japanese knotweed wine where we blended in some blackberries from outside. And we're going to bring this upstairs and pull the cork on it. Do you want me to hold it? Yeah, sure. So how long has it been since you opened one of these bottles? Probably three years. So is it fair to say you don't know what this will taste like? I think I know what it tastes like. <laughs> but I, I'm sure I'm going to be surprised. If it smells like baby wipes, I'm really going to freak out. Whoops, <laughs> sorry. No worries. <laughs> I will say that, that if you were to ask me to characterize this, um, complex is definitely a word I would use. And also I would say that <clears throat> that it being easy drinking wine is probably not words I would use to describe it. Do you think that that's right? Yeah, this is a this is a contemplative wine. Ultimately, even the knotweed blackberry wine was a little too weird to try to sell in the winery. But the experiment did get another idea swirling around in Ken's head, one that ultimately was economically viable. This plant, you let it grow like it likes to do. And in August, it sends out these tall, long fronds of little tiny white flowers. They're just loaded. It's beautiful. It's a decorative plant. It's a gorgeous plant. Bees love those flowers. They're going after these flowers, and they're taking that nectar back to their hive. The honey that's put up from Japanese knotweed looks like molasses. People call it black bamboo honey. It's fantastic. It's a very distinctive, very unique honey. I make mead out of that. Mead, the alcoholic beverage associated with fantasy, Beowulf, Vikings, and Robin Hood's Friar Tuck. 
It's a drink that's made from fermented honey, and it seems to be making a comeback in certain circles. One newspaper even dubbed it the Game of Thrones effect. So I make a honey wine commercially at Hermitwood's Winery made out of the flowers, the nectar from the flowers of Japanese knotweed. We call it not mead, K-N-O-T, mead. <laughs> when we talk about making a honey out of, out of a plant that's an invasive species, if the strategy of eating an invasive species is, is also a way of getting rid of it, um, making honey means that you have to wait for it to flower. So, so it's kind of the opposite. Well, here's the question. Why do you want to get rid of it if you're getting really nice honey from it? Is it an invasive when it's something that's valuable? Okay, the truth is, Ken's goal was never really to try to get rid of his knotweed. In fact, his philosophy has a lot more to do with the final product than any thought of keeping invasive species under control. His big idea is that we should be making alcohol out of things that grow really well in our own backyards. And this all started after the first time he tried blueberry wine. The next day, my buddy Chuck showed up on my doorstep with a bucket full of blueberries said, Ken, make wine like that. He's since branched out to try adding random plants that are decidedly not sweet. Sumac, staghorn sumac, this plant behind us right here, I use it as a natural form of tannin into my blueberry wines and other things to give it more grip. And he's even made a white wine from heirloom tomatoes that he says tastes just like Chardonnay. So are you just, when, when you go for a walk out here, are you yeah. just looking around you thinking like, what around me could I turn into booze? Yeah, always. <laughs> you let the Saccharomyces on there, the, the critter that eats sugar and makes alcohol, do its magic, and you end up with this liquid that's nutritious and connects you to your, to your gods and Mother Earth in new ways. I so, don't think I've ever heard anybody refer to getting shwasted that, quite that way. Well, that's the way I see it. And, and actually, you take a honey wine and you connect to Mother Earth like no other product on the planet. So for Ken, this is not really about eating invasives. It's more like, hey, we should be enjoying what grows in our backyard. So what's the problem with that? Commercially, people harvest asparagus. So there are devices and tools to make it efficient or ways of harvesting it with, with people to collect enough of it. And then I could ferment that and turn that into wine. And we won't have to spray it anymore. We'll, we'll cut it down and, and and grow it in places so that we can craft it into a wine. Well, this is the problem. When you get Ken excited about this idea, suddenly he's talking about deliberately planting one of the most invasive species around. Which brings up a funny tension here. Remember Doug Saigan, the earnest state worker who fights invasives? So, uh, so you're friends with Ken Hardcastle, yes? Yes, I am. <laughs> Have you been to his house? I have been to his house, He's got, it, he's got it everywhere. <laughs> he does have it everywhere. Does he drive you crazy? I have to say that it seems like, like uh, for you two to, to be friends is sort of like the odd couple a little bit. It is. It is. I love Ken. He's a great person, and I uh, have a lot of respect for him. And he, he wants to control that Japanese knotweed on his property. It is getting overwhelming. And with the density of the population there, um, you'd be hard-pressed to be able to throw a baseball <laughs> across it. It's, it's pretty dense. So, obviously, Ken is not actively thinking of starting a knotweed farm because he is, in fact, trying to eliminate some of the stuff on his property. 
so I've been out there trying to assist him on a few weekends last year to try to get a foothold, and we're working on it. So unlike us, you won't be able to try Ken Hardcastle's original not-weed blackberry wine. But if you want, you can go out in the spring and grab the new shoots when the plant first starts to push up from underground, like we did. It's a lot more It's a lot more mild than I thought it would be. Yeah, what did you think it was going to be? Like super bitter. No, it's good. I'd eat this. I'm going to make this into a pie. It's surprisingly tasty stuff. And in some ways, that's the problem. Because as we've learned, just cutting it actually might help it spread. The truth is there are many invasive species that can't be controlled by eating them. And for the ones that are edible, what if they taste so good, people just want to plant more of them? Well, isn't that a pickle? So our voicemail box has been pretty full lately, and we're going to answer some of your questions about the natural world. Or try to. After a short break. Hello, Sam Evans-Brown. Hey, Maureen McMurray. Hi, Taylor Quimby. Hello. So, Sam, Taylor and I have brought you here to answer some questions. Questions. Why do geese make veins? Does a bumblebee sneeze? Can a person eat trees? Can a polar bear freeze? Is a kidney stone kind of like a pearl in a clam? Well, I don't know. Ask Sam. Okay, so the uh, inbox has been quite full with questions, Sam. Are you ready to answer them? Ready as I'll ever be. Okay, well, let's get this uh, party started. Here we go. Hi, my name is Sarah. I'm calling from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, I was calling because I have a lot of bird feeders in my yard, and I really like to, you know, watch the songbirds and my indoor cats chatter at them through the window. But a coworker told me that, like, feeding the birds um, even if it's high-quality bird food, is actually harmful for them because it, like, makes them stay in places longer than they normally would if they're migratory and that it disrupts their natural diet and things like that. So is that true? Am I hurting the songbirds in our ecosystem by putting out bird feeders? Tell me if I'm a bird killer or not. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a bummer of a coworker! Oh, yeah, <laughs> come on, man. I just like to watch the birds. So this is a question that has been uh, plaguing the the sort of non-interventionist environmentalists for a long time. Like, like, are we upsetting the delicate balance of nature by feeding birds? And there are a couple of concerns. Right, first is are they staying too long? in places that they shouldn't be staying when they should be migrating because there's food for them. Are they getting lazy? Are they getting lazy and and then but more than that are they staying and then and then they try to continue on their migration and they they like freeze to death and starve because they've stayed for too long. Oh, okay. So it's actually bad for them. The other is that um they might be transmitting diseases to each other because they're like oh. birding up next to each other. Uh and then there's this third idea which is they're becoming dependent on the feeders. Like the species that don't migrate away become dependent, and then if you take the feeders away, then they would die. But all these questions have been tested. Um, the migration one, uh, there's a counter-argument, which is birds don't look for food to know when they should migrate. They look for daylight and temperature. Okay. They have found disease transmission, 
But then the question is like, okay, on net, is it good or bad to feed the birds? And there's this thing called Project Feeder Watch, which is like this (laughs) citizen science experiment, which is people documenting what birds are at their feeders. Are these like, I'm sorry, is there like a bias in here? Are these feeder enthusiasts who are are, running it? They're feeder enthusiasts. Mm. So, But but hang on, hang on, hang on. You look at the birds that like feeders from Project Feeder Watch, and then you check to see, are those birds getting more or less abundant, right, based on other data? And the answer is, no, it's they're basically totally unchanged. It's not like it's not like the ones that are eating at the feeders are dying. So so maybe the answer is that feeding the birds is like a purely selfish activity because you get to see them and it costs you a little bit of money, but really you're doing nothing. Yeah, and like there have been these studies that have found that, you know, chickadees for example, even if they've got a feeder that is fully stocked, they only get about 25% of their food from it because they they're like evolutionarily wired to look for food from different sources because like the food might dry up at any moment. Interesting. So she's not a bird killer. Not a bird killer. Yay! I thought you were going to say they only get 25% of the bird feed because the darn squirrels get the other 75%. <laughs> well, that is like a whole other part to this. Though, and that's a legit question, right? Like what about impact on other wildlife? Hmm. I have no idea. Hey, Sam. My name is Sarah, and I'm calling from Dunsville, Virginia. I have several friends who have hiked the Appalachian Trail, who hiked it, and another friend who's about to start. Um, and she's starting up in Maine in June, and we were talking about how she needs to get a head net to protect herself from all the black flies in Maine and in other parts of the Northeast. So my question is, why are black flies such a problem up in the Northeast, but they're not really problematic at all down here in the South? So the whole world has species of black flies. Um, In most places, they're pretty harmless. There are some in South America and Africa. There are some that carry this disease that will make you blind, but (laughs) that's not good. Not good there. But in most most places, they just they're just annoying. In places that it's cold, though, the black flies have this very unique thing, which is black fly season. We get swarmed for a couple weeks every year. And the reason for that is because we have cold water. All the flies lay their their eggs in the streams, and the larvae in the cold water take a really long time to develop. And so they basically all hatch in the spring because they've got to rush to get the eggs back in the water again so they can hatch in time for the next spring. Oh, so, so the black flies in other warmer places are there year-round in much lower frequencies. They're just, like, dispersed. Okay. Yeah, and so they don't have black fly season, which is awful. You understand how, like, caribou can be killed by by enough bug bites when you're in this kind of... Caribou can be killed by bug bites? Yeah, dude. Yeah, have you ever seen, uh, you know, uh, the the caribou migration movie that came out a couple years ago? You, they, they, they film a caribou being bit by so many mosquitoes that it literally just gets drained oh and falls God. over and dies. That is horrifying. Yeah. It's the worst way to go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question. Hi. This is Margie from Concord, and I feel a little shy about asking this question. It seems like it might be too silly. A couple of years ago, maybe one or two years ago, I started noticing that the uh, clouds just seemed enormous, just towering high. And maybe they're the same as they always have been, always will be. But my first thought was, there go our icebergs. 
And I just wondered if there is any connection between icebergs melting and cloud formation, height of clouds, volume of clouds. Thank you. So the connection is the temperature of the atmosphere, right? So the uh, a hotter atmosphere can hold more water. Now, that's not the question, though. The question is, does more water in the atmosphere make for bigger, more impressive thunderheads? Cumulant nimbus, yeah. correct? Yes. Mm, Look at the big science. brain on Quimby. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then to say, okay, we have more water in the atmosphere, does that mean we're going to have more of these cumulonimbus thunderstorms. I mean, science doesn't know the answer to that, I don't think. But definitely a warmer atmosphere holds more water and therefore should have more clouds. And that's been that's been actually like a big area of debate because clouds reflect sunlight. And so um, scientists have been like, okay, so if we have a warmer atmosphere and we have more clouds, doesn't that mean we're going to reflect more sunlight, which would attenuate warming? Mm. Um, and trying to model that and predict it has been has been like this hot topic for a number of years. Amongst nerdy meteorologists, you mean, because the rest climatologists, of us. Climatologists, climatologists. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> Lord Taylor. Uh. All right, next question. Hi, Sam. Um, this is Emily from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I'm a preschool teacher, and I was taking my kids out onto the playground this morning, and we always have to check to see if the playground is wet. But since we go out so early, the ground is always wet because there's dew on the ground. And I was just curious as to what causes the dew, because it can not rain overnight, and I know it has something to do with the drop in temperature at night. But I'm just curious as to specifically what causes dew to fall down on our ground. So, okay, so it is the drop of temperature, right? So the air, um, you've got a warm air mass, and then the temperature starts to fall, that air starts to cool. A warm air mass has more water in it, and so as the air cools, it squeezes the water out of the air, and that's the dew. But the dew point, which you've heard of, is this number that changes with the humidity. So if, if it's more humid out... That means there's more water in that air, so it doesn't have to cool as much for there to be dew. So the the more humidity, the higher the dew point. As in the the wetter the air, the the easier it is for the water to fall out of the air. So the higher dew point means that the temperature has only fallen a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Versus a low dew point, as in the temperature has to fall all the way down to that low dew point. Gotcha. And and this is a great opportunity to explain another number you've probably seen in the weather forecast: relative humidity. So if the relative humidity of 100% means the water in the air is condensing just as fast as it's evaporating. So 100% relative humidity is a day where where like you touch a surface and it feels wet because it's you're literally at the dew point right wow. now. The dew is forming all around you and evaporating at the same time. God. That's like when I lived in New Orleans. Yeah. Like it was like that all the time. Oh god, those the are worst. bad days. Yeah. Those are bad days. <laughs> Great place. Uh that's all I got, folks. Cool. That was a, that was a good round. Yeah. Solid learning. Yeah.
Outside In was produced this week by Taylor Quimby and me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Maureen McMurray, Logan Shannon, Molly Donahue, and Jimmy Gutierrez. If you'd like to see Ken Hardcastle's dusty New England wine cellar, we have got photos. Head on over to OutsideInRadio.org. You can also find more information about some of the studies we talked about during our Ask Sam segment there, too. And if you'd like to get your own question onto the podcast, the number is 1-844-GO-OTTER. That's 844-GO-OTTER. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music this episode was from Pottington Bear and Ari De Niro. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Wow, you're just like jamming your face full of chocolate and wine all at once. You're just you're just 